Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Quina, and in today's call. Over 2022, Insignia Ventures has had the privilege of partnering with entrepreneurs for the first time across a diverse array of industries. And we've had the privilege of going on call with some of these entrepreneurs on the podcast. What ties the work of many of these companies, Insignia has welcomed this year to its growing community of founders is a focus on sustainability. And while the environment comes to mind when it comes to the word sustainability, what we're referring to encompasses a far wider definition. From enabling the sustainable development of new digital technologies and enterprise digitalization through open finance APIs, Web 2.5 and Web 3 infrastructure platforms, and workflow automation solutions, to unlocking long-term labor sustainability in traditional industries in Indonesia like fisheries and textiles, and even filling in gaps in population sustainability through parenting and early childcare platforms, sustainability is all about tapping into the existing momentum of these various aspects of society and building the infrastructure for more long-term value creation. The reason we've decided to cover this in an on-call with Insignia podcast episode is because there are some key patterns we can pick up in terms of where Southeast Asia's digital economy is headed by revisiting some of these conversations with this context of sustainability. The first type of sustainability in our look back on 2022 is that of operational sustainability, specifically referring to platforms and technologies that have emerged to cater to various revolutions in digitalization across businesses. There's the open finance revolution in Southeast Asia, led by Brancas, meeting the trend of the quote-unquote fintechization of everything as more and more businesses look out to embed financial services in their products and services regardless if they are fintech businesses or not. Branca CEO Todd Schweitzer shared on the first episode of Season 4 back in January what this means in particular for emerging markets like those in Southeast Asia, as businesses are now given more accessible pathways to distribute financial services to a wider population. Now, open finance, this is 2016, right? So yes, open banking in Europe was being discussed, but open banking as a regulatory mandate, as a set of required infrastructure in the industry in Europe, it didn't take place until 2018. I didn't even know the term open banking or open finance. All we were trying to tackle was a very obvious friction point. We saw that everyone was paying by bank transfer and that in order to apply for a loan or build a credit profile, you needed to send payments. You need to send a deposit to the merchant's account, screenshot. You send a screenshot of your deposit, or if you're applying for a loan, you need to print out your bank statements and send your bank statements. And all of this should be done digitally and ideally can be done through an API so that I can authorize in real time sharing of data, sending of a payment, doing an identity verification. And then we realized it's actually a much bigger problem than we even knew. And that it's not simply a merchant problem, it's not simply a consumer problem, but it's actually a bank infrastructure problem. And in 2018, we had the first banks come to us saying, hey, Broncos, we heard that you have some expertise in financial services APIs. Can you actually help us develop APIs as products? And so that started a journey of building open finance infrastructure, not only to serve kind of startup and fintech and merchant use cases, but also to help the banks themselves those that do want to pick up and launch APIs as a new product to be able to do so in kind of a standardized and rapid way. And so that's how we got started. One thing I wanted to note from your response earlier was that while open banking is a relatively new term, like the roots of these issues 
go back, say like 20 years when Kenneth was working trying to drive adoption for these like credit card payments, it's still the same issues. And now they've just evolved. And now obviously the solution has evolved as well. So maybe you can break down that value proposition for banks. First off, a quick definition because open finance is thrown around. So I use the term open finance, not open banking, because actually a lot of the innovation in Southeast Asia is not only banks, it's also the non-bank financial service providers like e-wallets, remittance companies, payment processors, non-bank lenders that are actually developing APIs and developing some of this infrastructure. So I think this is not a banking movement per se, it's actually broader than banking. The reason why open finance matters is you're decoupling what a bank does from where the customer can access the bank's products. Now, in a non-digital world, that doesn't really matter because you're going to a bank to access a bank product. But in a digital world, oftentimes you don't even want to use the bank app. You just want to access the financial product when you want to use it. And when you want to use it might be at an online store, point of sale. If you're applying for a loan, getting the loan when you're actually purchasing the thing that you want, which is obviously leading a lot of the growth of this buy now, pay later, or things like vehicle financing, right? Where at the point of purchase, you can actually apply for and get approved for credit. So rather than taking the documents, going to the bank, and then going through the pre-qualification process and all that. So if I were to give a definition of open finance, it is allowing third parties to securely access and provide financial products to the customer. Most banks, and especially kind of larger traditional banks, they are not in the business of building software. They're in the business of managing risk, managing deposits and loans and treasury and following rigorous compliance. And that is what banks do. Building software is very different from that, right? It makes logical sense that eventually you should decouple the bank's product from where the customer accesses that product. And I'm not talking about lead generation, sign up here and a customer service rep will call you. I'm talking about actually accessing and using a bank's product on a third-party app, which could be a fintech, it could be an e-commerce site, it could be something else, but through a piece of software that's actually designed for me as a customer or for my use case, rather than the bank saying we built the thing and you have to use the thing. So that's, I think, what's exciting. And that's particularly relevant in Southeast Asia because you have such a massively underserved population. A big part of the reason that 50% of Filipinos are unbanked, 40-something percent of Indonesians are unbanked, is because the larger institutions have done the math internally and they say there's not a business case for serving the mass market population or the SME population, right? Especially the Indonesian and Philippines because they're island nations. <laughs> so for a bank to serve an island province, set that up that means bank. not just the <laughs> right, branch, right. but like physical cash and staff and internet access and reliable electricity access. And this all sounds like logistical headaches to a bank. And they say, ah, well, instead of putting a dollar into acquiring what is basically a poor population in an island province, we might as well just sink it into corporate lending business here in Metro Manila or in Jakarta, right? So by enabling open finance, you're changing the economics of serving that population so that it actually becomes, from the bank's perspective, profitable to serve that population. In fact, they can provide APIs so that population can have access to kind of apps or products that are designed for them. And it allows third parties which could be a smaller bank, it could actually be a non-bank, an e-wallet or a remittance company or non-bank lender to serve that population instead. Moving on from the open finance revolution, there's the automation revolution. As companies look to reduce spending costs and improve efficiency in back office operations especially, a trend that took even greater hold amidst the pandemic and now with market headwinds forcing companies to rethink costs as well. One of the companies pioneering developments in the automation for business in Southeast Asia is Blue Sheets, 
setting themselves apart as a data processing and workflow automation platform by not only unifying online data pathways, but also offline to online pathways, significantly expanding accessibility to such platforms for businesses across the region. Blue Sheets founders, CEO Christian Schneider and CEO Claire Layden share on the podcast more about the various directions in which their proprietary engine is opening up use cases for businesses to automate processing of unstructured data. So Blue Sheets engine is language and currency agnostic, but of course with that there are some things that are more difficult to process than others. So for us starting with a specialization in Southeast Asian languages, we're tackling the biggest problem first. So it gives us a really robust foundation to then scale outward to international markets and especially other just English-speaking markets, which you know NLP is already pretty well optimized. To your point around the historic trend of startups starting in Southeast Asia and then looking outward for opportunity really speaks to the, the digitization and kind of the, the speed at which maybe more Western markets have been able to adopt digital technologies and kind of bake that into their everyday stack. So for us, that's kind of like a twofold opportunity. The fact that there is less digitization in Southeast Asia, there's a trend, especially financial digital transformation. There's an interest in going digital and we help plug that gap. So we're providing the digital you know, workflows and integration, but we are one of kind of the only solutions that can actually take the offline operation and put it into that, that online space and help them digitize. So as we see things like you know, payment providers, e-wallets, cloud accounting technology really start massively growing in these markets, more and more businesses are wanting to use these products. And they're moving from a completely offline process to a digital you know, cloud solution. The middle piece of that to help connect it up and then take their offline data and kind of make it digital and make those other cloud solutions accessible. The other side of that, though, is that we do, of course, connect data with integration. So if the data is already online in those more you know, readily digitized markets, we kind of solve the same use case, same purpose, the product functions in much the same way. We're just kind of plugging into an online source of data and exporting to as we would normally. It's just a matter of how many input sources, are they online, are they offline? So for us, it doesn't change too much, but the the kind of digitization or you know, lack of digital operation in Southeast Asia is more of an opportunity for us. We can only test that and also say that the pandemic has been a massive boost for this region to adopt digital solutions. Uh, I think at this point in time, we'll still be a bit more upmarket when it comes to company size whereby the larger players who might have already started these initiatives, digital transformation initiatives earlier on, will now accelerate, which is exactly what we're seeing. But also, it, it definitely trickles down into the SME segment, where we see a lot of growth opportunity, a lot more, I'd say, willingness to automate and therefore eventually pay for automation as well. And so slowly, that educational missing piece is trickling down into the market. And I think that's extremely exciting. And as Claire said, we, we see two massive opportunities here. We'll be trying to tap into both of them for sure. What I find really interesting here is that typically with SaaS, whenever they say like, oh, we want to do both SME and enterprise, you know, you sort of have a question mark in your head. How are you going to be able to juggle all of that at the same time that you want to focus on one or the other? But I think for Blue Sheets, the way that you've explained the product so far, it seems that it's really easy to switch in a way between all these use cases, right? Mainly because you deal with the sort of the granular aspect of source data destination, right? And that makes it a lot easier to, even from a sales standpoint. Absolutely. Like the fact is that we're starting our kind of core use cases, unstructured, isolated, disparate data. So when we look at the difference between SMEs and, and corporate, like in any case, we're still dealing with unstructured, isolated, disparate data. Actually, in a corporate landscape, it's typically more structured, more, more consolidated than, than it is at, at the SME level. So 
for us, technically, there's no kind of additional customization or anything that we have to construct for the, the product or service purpose. Maybe some implementation piece on the corporate side, but it's not a limitation by any Right, means. right. And speaking of all these use cases, we've been talking about financial data processing, and we also talked a little bit about how that might apply to how the technology might apply to other types of businesses as well. So, you know, I was curious to know, like, what are the most important use cases that you're looking at, say, beyond financial data? And how do you see the infrastructure that you're building expanding, you know, beyond these long term? So first of all, I could say we, we love that question. I guess here we have to look a little bit more into the future of what's going to happen in the next, again, here's this five to 10 years. Another five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At this point in time, we assume <laughs> that in five to 10 years, AI actually finally delivers what AI has promised for 20 years now. And we will be able to apply AI to do more informed decision-making, eventually land on certain endpoints faster because AI supports the process along the way and can enhance the way that humans work. So what you need to apply AI to any business operation is data sets. And if you don't have uh, conform or cleaned data sets that would eventually look very similar over a long period of time, then the usage of AI is extremely challenging, especially if it is applied from the outside. So if you're, for example, an insurance company and you process claims applications on a large scale for a whole region, then if you're looking at a problem in Southeast Asia where you're solving for several different languages, several different markets, the likelihood of applying AI on top or inside that process with messy regional or local data sets it's close to zero. That one I can say. And so that's where we come in. We help build these really robust data sets that you can utilize later on when you need to or can finally apply AI on top of that, right? That will be a transformation for, for these companies that they've never seen before. It's not even happening in the Western markets right now. So we definitely are far away from that. But so in essence, I guess, what we're really looking to solve for here is we want to provide a clear stream of data for our customers in all segments that we're in. And we want to have them be able to utilize that data later on. That's, first of all, the main message to this yes, from a high-level perspective. Finally, there's the Web3 revolution with more operators and businesses looking to unlock value through Web3 products and services. Platforms like AAA have emerged to connect more businesses to cryptocurrency payments. AAA CEO Eric Barbier shares on our podcast how he got into crypto as an entrepreneur and what AAA's approach has been to really unlock the potential of facilitating transactions for and beyond 300 million cryptocurrency users across the globe. I got introduced to crypto with my engineers at Tunes. It was funny because it was a Friday night and usually on Friday night, the developers, the tech guys, they were usually playing games. But that day they were not playing games. So I tried to understand what they were doing and they told me about mining and trading and things you can do with crypto. And I actually bought my first crypto from one of my developers. So that's how I got to get interested in crypto. And then I realized that I had a lot of my clients having a lot of fraud issues with trade card payments. So when I discovered crypto, I say, oh yeah, that's, that's really a perfect solution to help merchants having fraud issues because the beauty of crypto is that there's no risk of fraud. There's no possibility to do a chargeback. Linking the two together, I felt like that was a very interesting uh, solution to help merchants, especially cross-border selling digital goods to be able to have a payment solution without any risk of fraud. Speaking of pain points and, and the merchants that you guys are, are helping out with AAA, Maybe you can explain for our listeners who might not be so familiar, 
how does you know AAA impact the user experience of a merchant looking at it from their perspective? Maybe you can give a specific example of a digital transaction that commonly occurs in AAA. For instance, we're working with Charles and Keith, which is a Singapore brand, but fairly popular across the world. And so what we're helping them is that in addition to the traditional payment option, like paying by cards or by Alipay and so on, now you have a new payment option, which is pay with your crypto. And that's what we power. So say you're buying a pair of shoes for a hundred dollars. What will happen is, and you decide to pay with crypto, you will be asked with which crypto you want to buy. Bitcoin, for instance, Ethereum, USDC, and so on. So you choose the crypto you want to buy with. And then what we do is we are locking the exchange rate for 25 minutes. So this means that no matter what is the volatility of the crypto, even during the checkout process, the merchant is guaranteed to receive a hundred dollars on their bank account the next day. So we're completely shielding the merchants from all the issues of crypto, like volatility, security, as well as compliance. So for the merchant, we really act like any of their payment gateway, exactly the same way they would work with a Stripe or somebody like this or an ADN, and then they get dollars on their bank account next day. That's really the key sort of the lock-in period that you guys set, because again, even if, you know, crypto uh, offers really that transparency, which you mentioned earlier, there is that volatility that comes with it. And so what is the offset in terms of that lock-in? Is there any offset that you guys need to do in order to make sure that that lock-in is sustainable and can be applied to any sort of coins or any tokens? So we're working with a dozen exchanges on the back end. So we have a very deep liquidity we can tap on. And so we're connected with all those liquidity providers through APIs. So we're able to immediately convert the crypto back to dollars or pesos or the currency of a merchant. So as such, you know, in our business model, we're not taking any crypto risk. We're not keeping crypto on our balance sheet in the long run. I'm interested to know, you know, especially in light of, you know, the recent round, which should have been announced by the time listeners are hearing to this, that was led by Razer. And you talked about in that press release about, you know, the importance of the gaming community as a market segment, aside from gamers, who are the typical types of customers would actually pay using crypto for buying something from Charles and Keith? So we have so many different type of users. You can have some of the people who've been investing long time ago and who are now quite rich. And then they would spend more on luxury items, things of this nature. We are also doing sub $1 transaction, for instance, in Salvador with Digicel. In Salvador, coin is legal tender. So meaning the merchants there, they have to accept Bitcoin. And for that, we've implemented the Lightning Protocol, which is the cheap and fast version of Bitcoin. So that can be a $1 top up of a prepaid phone. And as you know, you mentioned all the, you know, gamers, young generation and so on. There's a huge match between the gamers and the cryptocurrency users. But there's 300 million people who are owning and using cryptocurrencies across the world. So you have so many different use cases as more and more people are paying and get paid with crypto. Apart from B2B cryptocurrency payments, there's also the likes of headquarters or HQ.xyz, enabling Web3 businesses to better manage their wallets and finances. As headquarters CEO Shannon Rudis Paul shares on a panel discussing the future of driving Web3 mass adoption. So there's a quick introduction to what headquarters is about. We are building a dashboard, you know, basically to aggregate common tools to make it, you know, 
really easy for operators in the scene to be compliant, to actually have all their financial workflows in one place, but more importantly, for their financial reporting to be really at a level of accounting standards. Because I think right now, unless they are at a huge size like crypto.com at enterprise level, I think the SMEs in this space are a bit lost because a lot of them are also first-time operators, first-time founders, uh, you know, now is a bad period, but during the bull run, I think what instigated me to start headquarters was during the bull run, a lot of projects were pushing out, you know, really fast moving DeFi projects. You know, I think smart contract risk was a top priority, but that means that their back office was a huge mess, right? Payroll, could have been late for all you know, vendor payments as well are just chaotic. They just pick any wallet. Sometimes, you know, they pay from their personal expenses rather than company funds. So they are very haphazard. But I think now that it's a bad period, you know, people can slow down, you know, kind of get their back office and SOP is kind of sorted, right? So I'm just really one of the tools that's helping them. But yeah, I think to speak to kind of answer your question, route pools happen really just end of the day is personalities. I think it just comes down to bad actors. Bull market, everyone gets greedy, you know, they get away because if you lose a dollar, you make a $10 tomorrow. So that, that is reality. But now that things are back to bear market, I think you probably will get flamed very badly if you're a bad actor. So the market will correct itself. But yeah, I think Actual regulations is coming in. That's forcing the entire market to regulate ourselves as well. Proper governance, you know, are you authorized to make the transfer or are you just supposed to get approval from elsewhere? So I think after all the recent rug pulls, I think the entire market has learned our lesson. We expect that from our counterparties as well. And the dashboard that you guys are creating, could you share a little bit more about that? So basically anyone can now be able to do payments, do tracking, do accounting all through this dashboard by HQ. So yeah, definitely. So it's one dashboard. Obviously, we're trying to build a lot, but what we're starting off with is, I think unique to crypto, we have many different types of source of funds. There's fiat, which means it's bank account, it's crypto-friendly fintechs. The technology stack of that are APIs. We have to integrate the APIs. But at the same time, a lot of us are believers of the principle, not your keys, not your assets. So we also have funds in our non-custodial crypto wallets. Same, you know, you don't really access them through APIs. You access them through signing the smart contract. So it's pretty troublesome, actually, when things are not in one place, right? And that's where people get lazy and then hence tardy and hacks happen and bad vectors happen. So we're really just aggregating different sorts of wallets, you know, custodial, no custodial in one place, transactions in hence one place, and then your records in one place. Regardless if it's through financial services, automation, or Web3, it is clear that platforms that are enabling businesses to operate more sustainably ultimately have second-order and third-order effects in terms of creating more consumer inclusion into financial services, digitalization, and Web3 economies. What's more is that these platforms introduce greater operational maturity for businesses exploring these new frontiers like automation and Web3, which are much needed for nascent industries and fast-moving markets. The second type of sustainability we're covering is that of labor sustainability, specifically as it relates to improving labor opportunities in fisheries and fashion industries in Indonesia two massive and traditional industries plagued by the all-too-familiar issues of fragmentation. Platforms like Fishlog and Fisheries and Lithuanian Fashion are building more efficient tools and operational stacks for more players in these industries to emerge and grow by catering to their business needs, whether that involves connecting to more customers or financing for infrastructure and SKUs. Both fisheries and fashion are complex industries with untapped potential, especially in relation to exports that both platforms have been looking to unlock. First, we have Fishlog CEO Bayu Angara illustrating the market size and pain points of Indonesia's fisheries industry on our podcast. So Indonesian is contributes around 3 to 4% of the GDP of Indonesia. I think it is small if you are compared to the commerce, right? But if you compare to the food industry, agriculture, 
we have a good contribution with livestock. It's only like not more than 2%, but if we talk about seafood, because we do a lot of export, we do more than 6 billion export and we have like a 40 billion capture fish and aquaculture combined. So I think it's very big enough to feed the world. And I think we have a third or four bigger fish production across the globe. So everyone from the U.S. market, China, Europe, seeing Indonesian seafood is a special seafood because we are tropical, we are very endemic, and we have a lot of diversity across the species. So I think that's the worth it that we can tap for the commodity, for the industry. The industry is seen as, you know, already very significant industry. And I, I suppose there's a lot of export involved. So can you describe for us, like, where are the pain points there? Where's the fragmentation or where are the inefficiencies in this sector? And why is it important? Why is it important for a digital solution, one coming from Fishlog, to be in place to upgrade this industry? So if we are looking for like a seafood industry, if you compare to like a FMCG, right? The seafood industry from the both side, from the supply and from the demand side, both are fragmented, right? Supply, of course, there is a lot of big company, but it's more like small scale fishermen. We have almost 2 million small scale fishermen. So we need to aggregate all of the fish coming together from them. And then the second one from the demand side, there is a B2B market, there is a wet market, there is a modern market. But Mostly it's coming from the web market because fish is a very cheap protein source if you are compared to meat or chicken, right? So there is a bottom of pyramid of people who are able to purchase fish more better than meat, right? So that's why both sides are very fragmented if we talk about the supply chain, right? If we talk about seasonality, fish is the most difficult to capture for the inventory for the stock, right? Sometimes in some area, there's a lot of fish because there is a season there. But in another time, when they don't have any season, the fish is going low and the price is going high. It's a happen almost on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. It's a happen all the time. If you purchase fish from everywhere across Indonesia, everywhere can be sourced, everywhere can be supply side because fish is coming from everywhere, right? Fish, fish coming from every coastal. And also every coastal can become a demand center. So it is very fragmented. It is not like a double-sided marketplace that you know the supply, you know the demon, right? It is like a multi-sided marketplace. Supply can do transaction with other supply. Demon can do a transaction with other demon if they have their inventory, if they can hold the inventory. So the goal is how we can unlock the stock, unlock the inventory, whatever it is, at what price, at what volume. So when we know the stock at this moment and then we can deliver to the market that are absorbed with a good price, that's came for the sustainability and then we can capture all of the potential. So that's why we are starting from the cold storage warehouses because we want to connect between the distribution itself. Now Sarah Sofian, CEO of Wifine, shares her take on the complexity of the textile and fashion industry in Indonesia with its strong upstream, fragmented downstream, and Wifine's work in the middle. The industry is very interesting. Indonesia has been one of the strongest manufacturing hubs in Southeast Asia, if not in the world. The manufacturing industry, the upstream side, has the knowledge, has the skill, it has the network, it has the resource, and it has the history. It goes along to the history, right? But the industry is very opaque, it's very untransparent. And hence, we see that the ecosystem is not integrated. 
from upstream and also downstream. And that what makes the ecosystem not integrated as a wholesome and not optimizing both of the upstream and also the downstream side. It's the interesting way to do it. And we looked into the landscape that very limited amount of companies or startups are trying to solve this market, practically because of some challenges as localization and also the need to be on the ground to actually get engaged with the merchants and try to transform them into digital. But it's a necessary thing to do to actually transform their industry from conventional to 4.0. Textile itself is a very different product than all the other generic products like FMCG and, and, and everything that currently is being scaled by other startups. I think the complexity and also the detailed information in textile is very, very important to be captured for the consumer consideration to buy the items as well as for the merchant to actually manage your warehouse. And those detailed information that are very different than the generic products provide a very limited available platform or technology in the market for us to use. And hence, the challenge for us was to actually customize and build things that will be used and suitable enough for the merchant and the textile product itself. The next challenge is the adoption level. Because the textile suppliers are very, very comfortable in terms of old way of doing business, the conventional way of bookkeeping, recording, order processing, and it becomes the strategy for us to actually onboard and activate the merchant in a progressive stage. It's very difficult to push them to adopt or digitize things from zero to something that is very advanced. And hence, the strategy will be to getting the right progressive stages for them to be unlocked into a more advanced feature at the right time and the right amount of the usage behavior as well. So I think that is the most important. The technology itself is the enabler, but the core and also the importance as well as the challenge is to get that adoption level from the merchant side. Looking into their comfort level, into the old way of doing it, once we we actually get successful into digitizing that and hopefully we also get those stickiness in terms of having comfort in using our technology as well. When it comes to leveraging technology for labor sustainability, it is clear that it is less about upending entire processes and value chains, but rather fitting in the status quo in ways that progressively nudge behavior towards greater efficiency. And while the previous two definitions of sustainability have revolved around improving businesses and industries for the long term, this third definition ties everything together with human capital or population sustainability. This has been the focus of Tentang Ana through their work building a platform that serves as a partner to Indonesian parents throughout the entire childcare journey, from pregnancy to early childhood, across various aspects, from education to food and finances. What is interesting about this company is how Tentang Ana represents an evolution in the way technology platforms are being built, leveraging human capital in the form of communities to set up acquisition, retention, and their product roadmap. Community ultimately played a big role in the company evolving from a parenting education app early in the year to launching e-commerce on the app as well. Founders Dr. Mesti Ariatejo and Gary Juanda share on the podcast about the role of community in Tentang Anak's growing impact in Indonesia. One thing I, I was curious about, and this is one of these questions that our audience really loves to hear the answers to is, do you have any interesting stories from any user or customer that you've had thus far since you've released the app? Yeah, I heard so many feedbacks and positive response, especially on the simulation video activities and tutorials. Because actually why we made that, since I still do my own practice right now as a pediatrician, so I caught all the problems on the field, like what they really want, what they request. Doctor, please send me the video of how to child can walk or anything. So, you know, many parents ask similar things. So. I think that's one way that we can focus on what we want to build in Pantana, make sure that it will help the parents. So many parents are very anxious and also stressed 
because uh, their children don't want to eat and they don't grow really well. But since Tentang Anak launched not only menu, but also with the nutrition and also it's created by nutritionists, many parents felt that they are in good hands and they are very thankful for the features. So actually, Paula, Tentang Anak is very community-driven roadmap company. All of the things that you see in our app is actually all the things that match this client and match this other friend's client. Ask them. So basically, they just go to the clinic and in the past 30 days, what are the most questionly asked? Okay, and Master bring it home and we together, me with the team, and of course with Master, how can we scale this? How can we reduce not only parents' load, but also the doctor's load? How can we make this scalable so not only a handful of people who can visit penetration whenever they want, but also the rest of 20, 30 million parents in Indonesia having the same access and answer that all of Mesty's clients as well. It's really the other way around. So if our users are actually demanding something and I've seen a lot of stuff, that's something that we instantly built. So I think we've been lucky with that approach so far, and that's been a good prioritization in terms of product development as well. And I think we would love to keep it that way. And we are very lucky to have more than half millions social media followers. We're number one on TikTok, most people TikTok parenting account in Indonesia as well. We have a lot of feedback and we're very thankful for that. So I think what we need is actually more feedback from our communities. Finally, the theme of sustainability is relevant not just as a thesis or framework of looking at how companies are emerging to meet evolving demands in the market, but also simply as a mindset of running a business. He had the opportunity to talk on the podcast with Ching Fei Huang, the CEO of leading Thai online beauty retail platform Convi, about this mindset and how it has enabled them to grow down a path these past 10 years that is by all means not unique but stands out when juxtaposed with the venture-backed pathway many are familiar with. I've been thinking about this question for the last 10 years, right? I was fortunate that I make the right decisions. And in the past, when investors talk to me or even myself, are we just going to stay as a single platform, right? Is the business trying to build a platform that's the largest in Thailand or maybe possibly the largest beauty platform in the world? And I thought about this over and over again, right? I start to realize, right, even platforms like Facebook, right, even though they are social media platform, there are times that they end up that people are moving away from Facebook and they're moving to Instagram. And Instagram being the most popular and rise of the fastest platform over the last few years was taken over by TikTok just the last one to two years. And having realized that even such big platforms like this, that is being the number one in the world could eventually be taken over. And this question comes to my mind that is Convi is going to be in the same situations. So I questioned myself and I, I came to realize that the value about Convi is not we are the most valuable or most biggest platform to be in the market. But the things that we are doing for the consumers and for the brands, and that is what our value lies on, right? And behavior changes. They like to buy in 7-Eleven in one day, but tomorrow they like to buy in shopping mall, right? People like to buy in shopping mall today. They might like to buy in an e-commerce platform tomorrow, right? And things keep changing. And Combi has to be in the position that we have to foresee the behavior of consumers and adapt ourselves and being there for the, the new generations. Uh, that's how I, I see ourselves, right? And being the word omni-channel is that Combi doesn't have to be just in one platform. Combi has innovated ourselves to be in platform that the future is going to be. Right? That's why I'm also trying to foresee other than the social commerce 
other than even TikTok that is rising, where is the next going to be? And, and we have to prepare, right? Because a lot of this kind of platform, you, you want to get in and you get in, right? It, it's similar to 10 years ago. There's no e-commerce and Combi comes in first. I have to try to foresee. Right? And now people are talking about the metaverse. And then I have to see that is metaverse going to be the, the something, right? For the e-commerce market too, right? So they actually drive me like my interest to stay always innovating the, this company as well. Sustainability can mean many things. That much is clear from this episode, but at the heart of it is endurance. Enabling endurance of companies amidst rapid changes in technology and market headwinds, enabling endurance of industries amidst long-standing inefficiencies, and enabling endurance of lives and families from one generation to the next. As we look forward to talking to more entrepreneurs in 2023, it will be interesting to see how their companies are also contributing to a more sustainable world. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until our next call, I am Paolo Aquino and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.